Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your braving the cold waters of a host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined by my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Good morning, Goldie Ann. Good morning, Gary. And how are you doing today? Um, kind of chilly, actually. It's 66 right now in Florida. What the heck? Well, what the heck is, is that this was recorded the day after Hurricane Ian uh, ran through Florida. I am happy to say that we did not experience any damage nor any power failure. To our friends in Florida who are getting through the devastation left behind by Hurricane Ian, uh, our hopes and prayers go out to you. Yes, absolutely. I still have a lot of friends that are out of power right now. And uh, my daughter's road has still got water on it. There was a large amount of flooding, especially in the Tampa Bay area. We're more central Florida, so we missed a lot of that. But my parents, my sister, they're both without power, as are a lot of our friends. So, uh You know, it's kind of a wait and see, and hopefully the power comes back on very soon. Hopefully, yes. And hopefully that's the only hurricane that we have to deal with this year. Yeah, I was just on the National Weather Service, and there's an orange one out. But it looks like hopefully it'll turn and go up again, like the others this year. Well, it's been a quiet year for us, so... Well, not to scare anybody, they said 22 named storms, and they're normally pretty accurate. And we've been pretty safe so far, so All right. I'm, you know, the optimist of the family. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> but we have our generator ready. We have bottled water. We have freezer full of food. So we're ready if in case another one comes, but we would prefer it if it didn't. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and talk on more of a uplifting part. Okay. I was trying to look for a joke for today's episode but Goldie Ann there are so many sea monster jokes I just couldn't pick one. Oh, of course how many you got then well they all had me cracking up oh lord have mercy I wasn't expecting that there is no mercy there is only within the mist <laughs> yeah all right now today's episode does contain a story about a group of teenagers who were lost at sea possibly killed by a sea monster. Whoa. Their deaths were quite real, even if the cause is debatable. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. Always. It started out on a sunny afternoon in March of 1962, when five Florida teens went on a seven-foot Air Force raft to skin dive. They planned to explore the semi-submerged shipwreck, the USS Massachusetts, which sits on a sandbar about two miles from shore in the Gulf of Mexico. Tragically, four teenage skin divers, Bradford Rice, age 14, Warren Felly, 16, Eric Royal, 16, and Larry Stewart Bill, age 17, would be lost before the day was over and remain missing to this day. 
Uh, they're a little young to be out there by themselves. What the heck? 1962 is a different time. True. Only one boy would return. The survivor, Brian McCleary, age 16 at the time, came back with a story of how four of his friends died that day. It is a story as bizarre as it is disturbing. Today, we take a journey within the mist and tell of the Pensacola Sea Monster. Wow. So this is right here in Florida, huh? Right in the Gulf of Mexico. All right. Chapter 1. A Great Day for Diving. Every day is a great day for diving. Yes, just to let everyone know, Goldie Ann and I are recreational scuba divers, so we do enjoy diving, and Florida is perfect for it. But this is Brian McClary's story, which would be written in a Fate magazine article entitled My Escape from a Sea Monster. Here is his story. March 24, 1962 was a warm, beautiful Saturday. I was having my morning coffee when the telephone rang. It was Eric Royal, a skin-diving companion, calling to ask me to go with him and some friends on a skin-diving expedition off the coast of Pensacola, Florida. I have a question. What's the difference between skin-diving and scuba diving? I will answer that for you. Okay. I agreed to go after checking the morning paper for information on the day's tides and weather. To clarify your question, Goldie Ann, skin diving is different from scuba diving. In skin diving, it is the sport of swimming underwater without a diving suit or oxygen tanks. We generally call it free diving, where you only have your mask and flippers only. Yeah, I don't do that. (laughs) No, we usually take our tanks, but... It is a popular sport, and it, but it does take individuals who are in very good shape as swimmers and experience at holding their breath for long periods of time. So that's my problem. I can't hold my breath very long. But So that's the difference between a skin diver and a scuba diver. McClary goes on to write, quote, I had been living in Florida for about two years, and I enjoyed the diving most of all. Now... For the first time, I had a chance to dive at a sunken ship. Eric had said we would dive at a sunken ship near Pensacola Bay. Pensacola Bay is an inlet on the Gulf of Mexico about 13 miles long and two and a half miles wide. It is located in the northeastern part of Florida, specifically the Florida Panhandle. Back to McClary. I had not seen the boat before, but I pictured its open passages with fish swimming in and out, with moss-like growth hanging from its decks, and the whole ship covered by the blue-green Gulf of Mexico. Cool. I collected my gear, and walking out the front door smelled the fresh, clean air of spring mixed with the salt spray from the ocean. There was not a cloud in the sky. The white sand ran for miles down the beach, reflecting the morning sun like a mirror. As I stood there with the sun warming my back and heating the morning, I knew this was a perfect day for skin diving. A dilapidated Ford pulled into my driveway. It was Eric, Warren Sully, Brad Rice, and Larry Bill. We drove off towards Pensacola and a sunken ship called the Massachusetts. 
The boys told me it was on a sandbar about two miles off the coast. The Massachusetts is one of the oldest existing American battleships commissioned in 1890. Suffering from extremely poor design, it was retired and stuck out on the Pensacola Bay to be used as target practice during World War I. Once it sank, it became an underwater archaeological site still popular with divers today as it exists in only 30 feet of water. The turrets still visible above the waves at low tide. That was going to be one of my next questions, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, see, I'm thinking ahead for you. Now, after being underwater for almost a century, the ocean has taken over and the Massachusetts is a full-fledged artificial reef, teeming with life. Divers can see massive schools of fish intermingling around the wreck. Probably sharks, too. There are sharks, along with stingrays, massive goliath groupers, and schools of dolphins are also known to frequent the area. Their communications can sometimes be heard while underwater. Oh, that's awesome. So a very popular dive spot, now as it was in the 1960s. According to McClary, we had a 7-foot Air Force life raft tied to the top of the car. It had a drift anchor pockets for provisions, and oars. We planned to use it to get us back and forth to the ship. In a little over half an hour, we arrived at Fort Pickens State Park. The park is right across the bay from Pensacola and was a gun installation during the Civil War. The Massachusetts lay just off the coast. We climbed the three stories of the main embattlement, which is a long rectangular structure with a square brick tower on top on which there is mounted a telescope. Through the telescope, I scanned the horizon and saw an object sticking out of the water just off the coast. The Massachusetts. Cool. We changed into our swimming trunks, loaded all of our equipment into the raft, and carried it down to the beach. I waded into the water but came out quickly. It was very cold. We thrust the raft into the foam and cleared the small waves with ease. The water was calm. But that would all change. Uh -oh. Chapter 2, Storm Clouds. On the way out to the ship, we took turns paddling so no one would be tired for the diving. When I was relieved, I sat back and lit a cigarette. A small wind was coming down from the north, cooling the air. Down in the water, I could see the beams of sunlight piercing the surface to plunge below and become lost in the green depths. I guessed the visibility at about 40 feet underwater. I thought I would stand the cold to get into that fascinating world. My daydream was interrupted by Larry. Hey, we're not going anyplace. When we took off, the ship was on our right. Now it's on the left. So, paddle the other way, Eric said. You gotta make up for the drifts and tides. Somebody relieve me, Warren huffed. This water's rough. My arms are killing me. Well, that sounds like me when we're kayaking. <laughs> <laughs> the water had, in fact, become topped with small white caps which lapped against the side of our raft. I shifted my attention from the water to the sky. 
The blue now was overshadowed by some gray clouds which hid the sun and gave the water a dull blue color. The seagulls were skimming across the top of the waves towards shore. The salty breeze seemed stronger by the minute. Looks like we won't be doing much diving today. Storm's coming up. Looks like it anyhow. We'd better get back to shore, Warren said. We spun the raft around and started paddling back to shore, which by now was a thin green strip in the north. Harder to see each passing minute. Because of the wind, the waves were washing us into the bay channel, which extended into the open sea. In an attempt to keep from being dragged into the open water, Eric, Warren, and I jumped into the icy water and began kicking behind the raft. Larry and Brad took the oars, but the tide was just too strong for us. We climbed back into the raft, shivering and cramped from the numbing cold. The waves were so high by this time, we had to hold on to the sides of the raft to stay upright. As the sky grew darker, the small craft in the area began to desert the open water for safety in the port. Just entering the channel was a small criss craft. We thought it would be our last chance to get to shore safely. So we all stood up and yelled, Mayday! It was difficult to yell, wave, and keep our balance at the same time. On the deck of the boat, an elderly woman. At first, she didn't notice us. Then, she glanced in our direction and waved. <laughs> wow. We're saved! She's seen us! Hey, over here! Mayday! Mayday! We yelled. The boat did not veer from its course. Brad grabbed the shark gun, tied his red shirt around the tip, unhooked the line, and fired it directly at the boat. The kick from the gun knocked him over and the raft almost overturned. Crap, he just killed the old lady. Unfortunately, the spear didn't make it that far. The spear hurled through the damp air and landed about 50 feet short of the boat. It was impossible for anybody to miss the distress signal. But the boat creased into the channel and headed back into port. We're lost! Damn those fools! We're lost! We'll drown! Larry wailed. Look, we're not lost yet. There's a buoy over there, I pointed out into the channel, a mile distant. We'll tie onto it with the drag anchor as we go by. We'll be okay. No reason to get shook up. We tried to paddle to the buoy. The waves were beginning to swamp the raft. Only the inflatable sides kept us afloat. Dang. The five of us were sitting, numb from the cold, in a pool of icy brine. At last, we came close to the buoy. We were in for a shock. A massive edifice of steel loomed above us like an angry giant. Its worn, chipped red paint contrasted with the black sky. It was covered with seaweed from top to bottom. As the waves lifted it from its mooring, a great riptide was formed at the bottom. The water foamed, gurgled, and was sucked underneath the metal monster. 
Wow. All 20 feet of it looked down on us. I stood up and hurled the anchor at the boy like a lasso. But before the lion had a chance to reach the boy, the raft was caught in the undertow and dragged right for the bottom of the boy. It was going downhill like a roller coaster. Jump! I yelled, and just in time. As the last man hit the water, the whole thing came down full force on the raft, dragging it underwater. So the boy fell over? The boy was bouncing up and down, and as it was coming up and going down, it dragged the raft into the boy and submerged it. Damn. Luckily, the boys had abandoned ship just before that. McClary wrote, I surfaced, spitting water and gasping for breath. Over here! The raft came up over here! Warren yelled. Eric and I were the first to reach it. We got everything out and threw it overboard. We turned the raft over and managed to get most of the water out. The rest climbed back in and we clung to the sides. The rain began to lash down like icy needles. The sky was black as night. Just as we left the channel, we were dragged past the ship where we had intended to dive. The wheelhouse, which stuck out of the water, was being battered by the waves. The winds roared through the open windows of the bridge, making a noise like the wail of sirens. Back and forth, the cabin lunged, rocked by the mighty sea. I'd be terrified, man. This whole story is terrifying. That is one of my worst fears, being out there and something bad happening. And for these kids, it started out so great. They were all of high spirits and a beautiful day. And that's how it always starts. Mm -hmm. Well, sometime later, I don't know how long, the sheets of rain became a fine mist. The sea subsided, tapering off finally to the calmness of a mountain lake. Out of nowhere, a thick fog rolled across the water, blanketing us in the stuffy, moist atmosphere of an undiscovered tomb. Not a wave rippled. Not a fish broke water. Not a seagull called. Silence hung on the fog. For the first time in my life, I was really scared. While I was sitting there, I felt a big, icy hand grab me around the chest and squeeze. What? Symbolic. Okay. <laughs> my stomach froze, my heart skipped, and cold chills ran down my legs. We were exhausted from fighting the storm, and the present atmosphere made matters worse. Brad began to whimper. We're dead. We died in that storm. Oh, God, why did it happen to me? No, no, we're fine. Nothing to worry about. Calm down. We'll be back to land in a few hours. Eric tried to calm Brad. Chapter 3, The Sea Monster. Dun, dun, dun. After quieting Brad, we tried to think what we could do. We decided we were helpless until the fog cleared and we could see where we were. Until then, we could only wait. 
The fog showed no signs of lifting. Visibility was limited to 25 feet. There wasn't a whisper of wind. I tried some small talk to break the tension. Eric, see if the cigarettes got wet, will you? No, there are two packs, nice and dry. The lighters work too. We're in luck. We passed the cigarettes around. The tension seemed to subside. For some reason, though, we all spoke softly. We better get back soon. I've got a date tonight, Brad said, grinning widely. We all chuckled and felt a lot easier. But the conversation died down again, and everyone was lost in his own thoughts. The water was unusually warm beneath us, warm even for summer, and this was March. Larry bolted upright, saying, Shh! I hear a boat or something. We all listened for the noise he had heard. The misty air became filled with the odor of dead fish. Ew! My stomach heaved, and I gasped for breath. Just then, about 40 feet away, we heard a tremendous splash. The waves reached the raft and broke over the sides. What in the hell was that? Larry asked. Whatever it was, it wasn't any boat, that's for sure, Eric said. Again, we heard the splash. And now, through the fog, we could make out what looked like a telephone pole. It was about 10 feet high with a bulb on the top. It stood erect for a moment and then bent in the middle and dove underwater. The sickening odor filled the air. I've never seen anything like that in my life. What do you think it was? I whispered. Maybe it was an oarfish. I've heard that they look like snakes, Warren answered. Now, oarfish are large, with the giant oarfish being the longest bony fish alive, reaching 50 feet in length and weighing as much as 600 pounds. Its scaleless body is covered with a silver to silvery blue skin and is topped with an ornate red dorsal fin that resembles a decorative headdress. Yeah, I think I would die if I saw one. An oarfish? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> its dorsal fin runs the entire length of the fish with a tiny spine projecting above each of over 400 individual rays. The pelvic fins of this fish are elongated and similarly colored. Luckily, the oarfish has a small mouth with no visible teeth. They are found in areas spanning from the temperate ocean zones to tropical ones, yet are rarely seen. They also have a habit of floating near the surface of the water when they are sick or dying. Because of this, it's believed that the oarfish may be responsible for many of the legendary sightings of sea monsters and sea serpents by ancient mariners and beachgoers. In this case, however, the rest of the boys did not believe it was an oarfish. Oarfish don't stand straight up, Brad said. Maybe it's a sea monster, I suggested. Everyone looked at me in silence. We all had to be thinking the same thing. I was just the first to say it. <laughs> the silence was broken once again by something out in the fog. I can only describe it as a high-pitched whine. We panicked. 
All five of us put on our fins and dove into the water. Patches of brown, crusty slime lay all over the surface. I began to swim and kick spasmodically. I felt a small current under the surface, and I hoped it would carry me in the direction of the shore. Yeah. Rather than sit in their raft with a sea monster lurking nearby, the boys decided to try and swim to safety. They headed to the USS Massachusetts, where they could stand a better chance of surviving their ordeal with whatever was in the water with them. Keep together! Stay behind me and try for the ship, I yelled. Eric and I were swimming together. The rest were together behind us. We made pretty good time at first. Our fear was indescribable. In back of us, we could hear whatever it was, splashing and making a hissing sound. The fog was clearing some and the water was becoming a bit rougher. Darkness was closing in. Oh, hell no. Anything hisses at me, I'm out. Don't like snakes. Well, this is a giant snake-like creature, and they were definitely on their way out. Well, I would have died, so I, I wouldn't have to worry about it killing me. I would have no. literally died. Well, then you would miss the rest of the story. That's okay. Which goes on that the rain began once more, and the water was losing its warmth. I began to take long, slow mechanical strokes to keep me afloat, for I was becoming cramped. Eric was still nearby. Every so often, we would call back to make sure the group was all right. I don't know how long it was before we heard a scream. It lasted maybe half a minute. And then I heard Warren call, Hey, help me! It's got Brad! It got Brad! I've got to get out of here! His voice was cut off abruptly by a short cry. Brad! Warren, hey, where is everybody? I yelled back at the top of my lungs. Larry now swam with Eric and me. Warren and Brad were nowhere in sight. Something was picking off the boys one by one. Great. For someone who loves horror movies, this should be right up your alley. Well, not really because, you know, it's in the water and I like the water and I don't want to die. I'm pretty sure they don't either. But the only sounds now were those of the sea and the lightning. I had an eerie feeling swimming in a storm, not knowing how many feet of ocean were beneath me. What was down there waiting for me? I wanted to sink into that green silence. I felt all alone, peaceful and quiet. It would have been so easy just to surrender to the sea, but something inside me kept going. The pain in my legs was like fire, but I kept up the mechanical strokes. I knew I had to keep going. Jesus. When at last I realized where I was again, Larry was gone. Eric, what happened to Larry? He was here a minute ago. I don't know. He was just here. Both of us dived underwater for him, trying to see if we could get him to the surface. But there was no trace of him. After a while, we had to give up. Then Eric grimaced and sank. 
I swam over and wrapped his arm around my neck. Cramps, he said. We swam like this for what must have been a couple of hours. I hoped we were going in the right direction. It was pitch black. The waves were breaking on my head. My lungs were filled with salt water. I was ready to give up. Eric was becoming heavier by the minute, and I had no hope. Just as I was going under, the lightning flashed, and I saw the silhouette of the Massachusetts. Yay! I began stronger strokes. We were saved. Come on, Eric, I said. We'll be okay, boy. The ship's just over the next wave. I've got to keep up. Come on, baby, let's go. I was close to the ship when a giant wave pulled me under and yanked Eric's arm from around my neck. I came up and I couldn't see him anywhere. Then lightning flashed and I saw him ahead of me. He was afloat and swimming for the ship. Right next to Eric, that telephone pole-like figure broke the water. I could see the long neck and two small eyes rise up. The mouth opened and it bent over. It dove on top of Eric, dragging him under the water. Oh, holy crap! I screamed and began to swim past the ship. My insides were shaking uncontrollably. I do not know what happened after that. The Massachusetts is two miles from shore, but I do not remember swimming this distance after Eric was killed. I thought I went down, down. I thought I rested on the soft sandy bottom. Voices talked to me. I felt warm and secure. I was at peace. I knew I was dead. Damn. Chapter 4, Awake on the Shore I couldn't believe it when I felt sand under my feet and the silence of my peaceful death was shattered by the pounding surf. I was flung forward on my face and got a mouthful of sand. I tried to walk, but I just kept falling to my knees. Then I remembered I had my fins on. I threw them back into the water and headed up the beach. I tried to find help. I could see the lights of the Pensacola in the distance, but I didn't know where I was. The cold night wind was making me shiver, so I looked for a warm place. I finally came to a tower of some sort. I climbed all the way up the ladder and passed out on the floor of the little cabin. I must have slept about two hours, but it seemed like two years. All night long, I kept hearing voices. They're probably of his friends. Help me, help me! Not much he could do at that point. I was awakened by the Sunday morning sun hitting my face through a window of the tower. I ached all over from the long swim. I got up and looked out the window across the white beach, across the calm gulf. The events of the previous day seemed like a bad dream. I headed for the ladder. My legs wouldn't support me, and I fell down the ladder to land face down in the sand below. I was crawling across the sand when a group of boys came up to me. 
Say, mister, you must be one of the divers lost yesterday. Yeah, I've got to get help. How did you know about the accident? The Coast Guard found the raft this morning and began a search. I've got to get help. Please. The next thing I remember was waking up in the Pensacola Naval Base Hospital. Breakfast was in front of me, but I couldn't eat because my throat was sore from the salt water. The director of the search and rescue unit came in to see me that morning. Director E.E. E. McGovern was a mild-mannered, friendly southerner. I remember him well because of his kind face. I told him exactly what happened, what I had witnessed. Did they find any of the others? I asked him. No, he replied. We've had planes out all morning and we've been combing the beaches, but we haven't found nothing yet. Do you believe me about what happened and all? I asked. You know, son, he drawled, the sea has a lot of secrets. There are a lot of things we don't know about. People don't believe these things because they're afraid to. Yes, I believe you, but there's not much else I can do. He asked me some more questions, and then he left. Some reporters interviewed me later that day, and after they had gone, I wondered if I really believed what had happened. I thought it must have happened because the boys were dead, and I knew that thing that got them was real. It is true. The sea has some terrible secrets, and now I know how she manages to keep them. Ouch. That's a very interesting story. And all of this is documented? This was all written by him in his words. And it was documented by the reporters who came in and interviewed him after the fact. Wow. But their versions of the stories take a little different turn. What, the reporters? Yes. Ah, okay. Chapter 5, The Reports. Both the Pensacola Journal and the Playground News of Fort Walton carried stories of this tragedy. These stories did not match Brian McClary's account of what the doctors at the Naval Station had to say. One report said Brian, quote, drifted and swam more than two miles, but Coast Guard and Navy rescue units estimated he swam five miles. Wow. Doctors at the naval base said he was in water for over 12 hours. When interviewed by the police, he drew the following picture of the sea monster he said he and his friends encountered. And I will make sure to post this in our show notes and on our Facebook page. It looks like Nessie. It does have that same snake-like head, uh, snake-like neck and small head at the top uh, with the buoy behind it in the water. That's pretty awesome. Investigating Brian's story revealed that a sea monster he saw looked a lot like a character named Cecil, the seasick sea serpent, from a children's cartoon that had recently aired in the months before his diving trip. They were a little bit older than watching a kid's cartoon. But he may have saw it in passing. Yeah. And this is an image of what that cartoon sea monster looked like. So there was a lot of comparisons between Cecil and McClary's sea monster. Okay. 
Brian's brain may have rewritten the events as something that was easier to comprehend, like a monster he saw on TV attacking his friends. While it does sound strange, this theory matches other recorded events and what we know with how memory works. Could McClary's mind not have been able to handle his friend's drowning and therefore he created a sea monster to explain it? That sounds... I, I don't know. I don't think that sounds real for a teenager. It is hard to believe in that. The interviewing reporters told Brian that their stories would not mention the sea serpent as it was, quote, better left unmentioned for all concerned. So the newspaper articles didn't report anything about the sea monster, just that the friends had drowned in the water. I've seen that movie. Then the kitten boy, he dies because it wasn't reported. Well, those that did not accuse McClary of perpetrating a hoax, but did have a plausible answer that the sea monster that ate the four teenagers could have been a real creature. One theory supposes that the boys fell victim to a North American right whale, which is a species of baleen whale, which means it doesn't have teeth, it has that comb-like mouth. They have been known to rise mysteriously up out of the water glide along and then sink back down without a trace. Due to its coloration of being light and dark, in the light of the storm the head could almost look invisible so that all you would see is the skinny portion, which would look remarkably like a serpentine neck and head. So could McClary have seen a breaching right whale coming out of the water and thought it was a sea monster? In fact, a couple of years ago, there was a sea serpent report that was put onto YouTube video. It was taken by some excited boaters in Ireland, and it turned out that it was a North American right whale, which is rare in present-day Ireland, but historically used to occur there. So I'm going to post that video as well so that you can see what some people believe McClary saw in the fog and in the dark and mistook for a sea monster. The size, 10 feet long, and motion of rising, gliding along, and then sinking back down does match McClary's description. North American right whales do occur off of Florida in that time period that he saw it. They were still rare in the 1960s, so it would have been a rare enough sighting that McClary might not have known what the creature was. Tragically, the bodies of Eric Royal, Warren Sully, and Larry Stewart Bill were never recovered. One body did wash ashore a week later after the accident. And Brian McClary said, quote, To the best of my knowledge, I identified the body as that of Brad Rice. It was determined that he died from drowning and had no injuries that may have been from a sea monster attack. He was the first one to go down, right? He was the first to disappear. Now he could have drowned. The raft was found 10 miles from where Brian came out of the water. He was picked up near Fort McRae about 7.45 a.m. Sunday, March 5th, in 1962, by a helicopter from the Naval Air Station. He spent the early morning hours in an old gun emplacement. The newspaper clipping further stated that Brian was suffering from shock and exposure from the cold water. 
He was released to his parents after a brief treatment in the Naval Hospital. Science investigators have also reviewed his story and have another theory involving methane gas. Bubbles of methane gas have been known to erupt from the seabed and could have enveloped the boys. This would account for the fog and perhaps the gas created a sea monster as a hallucination. So you do remember they were reporting the horrible odor and so there is a theory that maybe some methane gas came up and caused the boys to hallucinate. For Brian McClary, he remained convinced of his experience and that a giant sea serpent was responsible for the death of his friends. He suffered from depression in the months after the event as no one would believe him. Yeah, that could really take a toll on you. Well, three years later, in 1965, he wrote of his experience just as we gave it here. The trauma of whatever happened that day led to addictions of drugs and alcohol, and he died in 2017 taking with him the truth of whatever happened on that day in 1962. Oh, that poor kid. He remained convinced that what he saw was a creature unlike anything identified since the days of dinosaurs. Could he have actually come across one of the legendary sea monsters reported by sailors all over the region over the centuries? So sad. Television series Monsters Across America did dedicate an episode during 2020 in which the host, Casey McDonald, visited the site of the deadly sea serpent attack. And hundreds of divers visit the USS Massachusetts to this day. Wow. wonder if we should go visit it. It is something we could easily get to. Yeah. I mean, it's just a drive up the coast to the Panhandle and then charter a boat out to the USS Massachusetts. It would make an interesting dive. Yeah. Although I'm not going out in a light in a inflatable raft. I'm taking a real chartered boat. <laughs> yeah. With the captain staying on board. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and staying in the area. Yeah. It is most likely that the trauma of the night trapped at sea during a storm created the sea monster in the mind of Brian McClary. It was there to help him deal with the loss of his friends. But perhaps there is more swimming amongst the wreck of the Massachusetts than dolphins and fish. Well, being sure to double check the weather before going on any dives today... I suppose this is a good time to make our way back out of the mist and bring this episode to a close. Special thanks to David Facilian and Facilian Studios for our introduction music. We are on social media and love to hear your stories and opinions about sea serpents and the Pensacola Sea Monster. You can reach us on the Facebook page Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter, plus... We have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share. We hope you enjoyed our story about the Pensacola Sea Monster, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, look closely into the waters and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. See you next time.